Romans 15, 22 to 33. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped by my journey on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the very word of God. It's always helpful for us to remember that what we call the book of Romans was, of course, a letter sent to a church at a particular time in a particular place with particular purposes. And so even though Romans, most Christians know as uh, one of the great expositions of the gospel of Jesus, what we find in this letter, of course, since it's a letter, is not just an explanation of the gospel, not just doctrinal teaching. We learn in Romans not only what the gospel is, but we also learn, as we can kind of gather a bit from Paul's uh, plans for what he's going to do next and kind of that personal correspondence, we also learn uh, how the gospel impacted the life of the believers. Uh, We learn, of course, how the gospel impacts the life of the apostle who wrote the letter to the Romans, but we also learn a little bit from his example how the gospel should impact us in our life today as Christians. And so when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he, of course, set out his his thesis for the entire letter in chapter 1 when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The Apostle Paul had as his great ambition, his great passion, the gospel of Jesus. It was like a treasure that he held, so overwhelmed, so consumed by the gospel, it impacted everything about his life. And undoubtedly, Paul would hope that the gospel of Jesus would also be that which consumes us as Christians 2,000 years later. When we look at the gospel of Jesus, there are two things in particular, two top priorities 
that as we look at how Paul lived his life in light of the gospel, um, that kind of dictated everything about his life. And that is, of course, the gospel itself, the content, what, it, what this message is. But then also in particular, the church of Jesus, the church that Paul was consumed with seeing planted all over the Roman Empire. This morning, as we look at this personal correspondence here toward the end of the letter to the Romans, I want us to think about these two words, gospel and church, and, and, and what, what, how this impacts the way we should live. Now, before we get into this, let me just set out before us uh, two ways that we should be thinking about gospel and church in light of what we've learned in our study of, of Romans together. First, the gospel. When Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel, what is he talking about? And what Paul understood the gospel to be, given his first century Jewishness, his understanding of the Old Testament, and what had come to pass in the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, what, what Paul understood the gospel to be, we might put like this. The gospel is in Messiah Jesus. The promised kingdom of God has come. And the redemption of the world is underway. Now catch that for a moment and think about it this way. Paul understood in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that everything that had been promised in the Old Testament, the entirety of what we call the Old Testament, Israel's great story, Israel's history, all that had been predicted, all that had been promised, all that Israel was longing for and waiting for had been inaugurated, had come to pass in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And if that's true, then Paul understood the gospel this way. The redemption of the world was now underway. Redemption of the world. We're talking about Genesis 1, 2, 3. We're talking about God creating a world, but the world is now troubled by sin. God's great promise in the Old Testament is that through Israel, through God's chosen people, God is going to redeem. He's going to restore all of creation, everything that's wrong about the world, God is going to resolve. Now, are you letting this settle in? I'm talking about all the things that you wake up and hear on the news that are trouble and problems and difficulty. Everything that your, your neighbor talks to you about, all the problems of the world, the Bible is about that. The Bible is the promise that through God's chosen people, God is going to bring restoration, redemption to this world. This is how Paul understood the gospel. It's why he would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the, it's the solution to the problems of the world. It's the power of God for salvation, for rescue, for deliverance, from everything that's wrong in the world. So this is why, of course, Paul would go and preach it everywhere. He's announcing good news. The promise of the Bible, the promise of God's restoration of the cosmos has begun in the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of 
Jesus of Nazareth. The redemption of the world is underway. Now, the second word, church. Jesus is building his church. And he has promised that as this redemption of the world project is underway and Jesus is building his church, he has promised, you know what he said, that the gates of hell, the powers of darkness will not prevail against the church. So are you tracking with me how Paul understood the gospel? He understood that God in the person of Jesus has brought to fulfillment the promise for the world, the, 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 prob- the problem for all of creation. And God is bringing this restoration to completion, to its fullness, through, as he said along, his chosen people. Through the church, now united to Israel. So when we talk about church today, let's think about it the way Paul thought about it. The communion of saints, the gathering together of God's people, is a gathering for the purpose of worship and fellowship and for giving light to a dark world that there is hope, that there is hope for the brokenness of life. Now, this is Paul's vision. This is how he understands the gospel, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus. And if he's right... If Paul was understanding his Bible correctly, if Paul was interpreting the events about Jesus of Nazareth correctly, then surely he would say to us, even to this day, that you and I need the church. We need the communion of saints, and we need it first to pursue gospel ambition, second, to enjoy gospel blessings, and third, to achieve gospel goals. Now, I'm trying to help us this morning, because I'm trying to to help myself, (laughs) to take this doctrine, this announcement, this proclamation of Jesus, the gospel, and apply it now to what this means for our lives. We need the church to pursue gospel ambition, to enjoy gospel blessings, and to achieve gospel goals. Now, Let's see if we can understand these together this morning. First, we need the church to pursue gospel ambition. Now, here's, here's what we mean by that. Take a look at the passage before us today. And notice that Paul saw the church at Rome. This is a church that he had not visited before. You're gonna, we're going to find out next week that he was, he was acquainted with many of the believers in Rome. But he hadn't himself been there. But Paul saw the churches at Rome just like he saw other churches. He saw the church at Rome as a critical, a crucial, strategic piece in completing his mission and calling in life. Paul understood that he could not complete his ambition without the church. Now let's ask ourselves the question, can you Can I? Do we need the church to fulfill the ambition of your life? If our ambitions, of course, are shaped 
by the church? And the answer is a resounding yes. And look how this worked for Paul. It's easy for us to think of Paul, of course, as just a missionary, a full-time gospel worker. And, and maybe you're saying, that's not me, so this is a complete disconnect. But I don't think Paul would have saw himself that way, not the way you're probably thinking. Paul would have saw himself as, as a creature, as a, a member of the human society, but as redeemed by Jesus and bringing good news to the world. So perhaps he sees his vocation not much different than you should. And look what he says here in verse 22. He explains here, of course, why it is that he hasn't yet made it to Rome to visit the Christians there. And he, he speaks in this verse of being hindered from coming to Rome. Of course, what he means here from what he said in the previous passage is that in the providence of God, he has not yet made it to Rome. He's been in, so engaged in gospel ministry in the eastern part of the empire for so long because his work there has been highly successful. Everywhere he has gone, yes, there's persecutions and there's sufferings, but people are believing the good news. They're believing that Jesus is indeed the hope for the world. Churches are being planted there. And so in short, he explains here in verse 22, he hasn't made it to Rome yet because as much as he wants to go there, something else is more important. The fruitful work that God has given to him was a higher priority than his making a trip to Rome. But now he says, verse 23, the time has come. He's confident that soon he's going to get to Rome. And notice two things that make him believe this. First, he says that his work in the east, the eastern part of the empire is now complete. He says, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Now that's quite a claim. Of course, he doesn't mean that there's no more gospel ministry to be done. He means that there are now sufficient numbers of churches established there in those parts to go ahead and carry on the ministry that he has begun. So he is free to go concentrate his efforts elsewhere. So that's the first reason that he's confident he's heading west. Second reason, Paul says he is certain that he will soon come to Rome because, look what he writes, he has longed for many years to come. Now, we know he's sincere in his desire because he wrote about this in chapter 1, saying that God himself could testify how greatly he longed to come and visit the church at Rome. So he's sincere about this desire. But I think there's something here in these very personal words of correspondence that might be worth our attention for just a moment. In Paul's longing to go to Rome... And in the, in the excuse that he has given for why he hasn't made it there yet, there is a, there's a bigger strategy that's at work driving all of Paul's ambition. Uh, to set the stage for this, I'm reminded of a commercial that used to play for Southwest Airlines some time ago. A little boy is talking to his grandpa on the phone, telling grandpa of all the things he's been up to lately. On the other end of the phone, grandpa's listening intently and saying, wow, that's really great. I wish I could have been there. To which the boy then replies, yeah, well, that's what you said last year at Christmas and on the first day of school and when my baby brother was born. And of course, 
the grandpa is ashamed, and the tagline is then said, want to get away? (laughs) Want to get away? Have you ever considered, brothers and sisters, have you ever considered, just stop and think for a moment, how the excuses that we make for why we haven't done this or that actually reveals to us what our highest priorities truly are? When we say to somebody, hey, I, I can't do that, or no, I can't be there, what we are actually saying is something else is a higher priority. Now, that's not a bad thing. It might be good for us from time to time to be a bit more explicit when talking to a brother and sister. No, I'm not able to help you because I'm going to do this, and that's more important, or that's a higher priority. That might be an interesting conversation. We start talking like that. It might help us, however, to consider if the way we are prioritizing our life is correct. So, for example, I have often said, you've heard me say, I wish I could play the piano. Or I wish I could play the guitar. But what I'm really saying is, it would be cool if I could play a musical instrument, but it's really not that important to me. Certainly not as important as playing golf. That's where I'll put my attention. And if your ambition in life is not a gospel ambition, then here's the thing. The church, and remember what I said by the church, when I say church, I mean the communion of the saints, that the brothers and sisters that you are united to, the church will fall in its priority on your list of hierarchy. It just won't be that important to you. Any excuse will do to keep you from corporate worship or from being with your missional family or from reaching out to that brother or sister in need. As a pastor, a lot of times people will say, hey, I won't be there this Sunday because, and I say, wait just a moment, what you're about to tell me, is your priority, right? That's what you're about to say. It might help us to reflect a little bit on how these priorities are listed in our own mind. Paul is upfront about his priorities. He doesn't hide it. In fact, look what he says here. This is pretty striking. He really does want to go to Rome. God can be his witness. For years, he's longed to be there. But he first says, I had to complete my work in the East. That was a higher priority. I want to come see you, Roman Christians. I want to visit your church, but this is the highest priority in my life. I've got to be here first. But now that that mission is complete, he can say, my sights are set on coming your way. But even still, look in verse 24, Paul has an ulterior motive. He says in verse 24, I hope to see you, look what he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. After all, as he has already said in verse 20, his ambition is to preach the gospel in places where Christ had not not yet been named. So yes, he's sincere. He really does want to go to Rome. But even this desire is not as high a priority for him as his real goal, his ambition, to see the gospel make its way all the way to Spain, to the western regions of the Roman Empire. Do you see Paul's priorities here? He's told us. He's laid them out. He wants to go to Rome. He's sincere in that, but he wants to go there for a reason. And the reason is so that the Roman Christians can help him get to Spain. Undoubtedly, he hopes that they'll give him some financial support for his journey, but the help that he specifically mentions here is spiritual encouragement. It's translated in ESV 
at the end of verse 24 like this. Once I have, an en- once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Back in chapter 1, he talked about his desire to come to Rome so that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith source of strengthening for the priorities of his life. He knows what his priorities are, but he also knows that keeping his, these priorities and fulfilling them will require the communion of saints. He can't do it without the church. He needs the communion of saints in order to complete his mission. So I'm asking you, Christian, is that true for you? Whatever your ambition is in life, how important is it that the communion of saints helps you get there. Can you make that connection? If so, perhaps you have good gospel ambition. If that seems completely irrelevant to your calling and vocation in life, maybe some correction needs to be made in your priorities. Now, second, we need the church in order to enjoy gospel blessings. Now, verse 25 ought to catch our attention. Paul has already told us that he sees his mission in the East as sufficiently complete for him to give his attention to gospel ambitions in the West. But not yet. Hmm, another priority comes to play here. Something else is still more important. Catch this. Something else is more important than going even to the western part of the empire where Christ has not yet been named. Now, for Paul, that is his great ambition, he says. So this is striking. Something else is more important to Paul than preaching the gospel in a place the gospel has not yet been named. He is writing from Corinth, and he says, it's time for me to head west, but first got to go back east. What's he doing? Look what he says, verses 20, uh, verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. And what he tells us here in verses 26 to 27 fit remarkably well with the narrative that we have recorded for us in the book of Acts. It would appear, as we've said already, that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans during his three-month stay in Corinth described in Acts 20, verses 2 and 3. And so before he heads west, Paul has to go back east to help, verse 26, the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. It's a little historical note that you should know is no small detail in Paul's life. His great ambition, he already told us in verse 20, is to preach the gospel in places where Jesus was not yet known. So why is it that this present occupation of bringing aid to the saints in Jerusalem is a higher priority, even higher than that. When we examine the narrative in Acts and the rest of Paul's letters, we find out just how important it was for him to bring aid to the poor Christians. This little historical note right here. I got to go back east, bring some aid to the poor saints in Jerusalem. We read that like, okay, whatever. No, this is like a major theme in Paul's life. It is a major part of his ministry. Let me, let me show you. Paul had previously been involved in this kind of relief effort to famine-stricken churches in Israel even before he set out on his great missionary journeys. You read about it in Acts eleven twenty-seven 27 to 30. Now, why would Paul 
He's a great apostle of the God. He's a church planter. He's a missionary. His ambition is to go to unreached places. And yet for Paul, even before he does that, the first thing in his life is he's involved in bringing relief to impoverished saints. Why would he do that? Remember for just a moment who Paul was. Remember his history. It took some time for the Christians to accept him in his ministry, not only because of his past, an infamous persecutor of the church. Hey, you want to bring that guy in to visit? You know, the guy who kills Christians and hauls them off to prison. But it also took some time, catch this, it took some time for Paul to be received, accepted among the Jewish Christians because the gospel he preached to the Gentiles was viewed with some suspicion at first by the Jewish believers. We know this from Galatians chapter 2. Paul goes through an examination of sorts of his orthodoxy. He goes on trial before the Jewish Christians. And at the end of the trial, it's like an ordination council, he's finally ordained into ministry by the apostles Peter, James, and John for concentrated ministry among the Gentiles. But with that ordination, the apostles asked Paul, Galatians 2.10, remember the poor. And he says, this was the very thing I was eager to do. How eager was he? Well, as one New Testament scholar has observed, this suggestion, hey, Paul, as you're doing that, that, that ministry among the nations, those places where Jesus hasn't been named, could you remember the poor? This suggestion, one New Testament scholar has observed, would become Paul's obsession for nearly two decades. When you think of Paul, do you think of him as consumed with bringing relief to the poor? You should. In fact, it would be hard for us to understand how Paul viewed the gospel and the kingdom of God if you don't understand this. This is no exaggeration. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, we find that Paul directs the Gentile churches to take up a weekly collection for the saints. He's referring to this collection, for the poor saints, so that when he comes, he's not going to have to gather up the money. It's already been gathered. In other words, as Paul visits the various Gentile churches, he expects them to already have prepared an offering of money that he can take back to Jerusalem to alleviate the poverty of the Christians there. So there's another example. That's not enough. 2 Corinthians, two entire chapters, chapters 8 and 9, are devoted to this passion that Paul has to collect money for the poor saints. So again, if we don't understand this ambition, this gospel ambition, we will not understand how Paul viewed the gospel. Why did Paul care so much about bringing relief to the poor Christians in Jerusalem? Why was this so consuming to him? And one way to understand it, we don't have time to look at this other passage, but just the passage before us is verse 27. Look what he says. 
He says that the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to give financial aid to the poor in Jerusalem. And then he writes this, Indeed, they owe it to them. This duty, this obligation, he explains this way, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that is, Israel's spiritual blessings, we're reminded here of Romans 9 through 11, right? If they've come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Now remember, Paul's gospel cannot be understood without connecting the dots between the consideration that, of the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament and what Jesus has now done. Salvation, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. So you have to understand the connection between Israel and the nations to get this. But here, here's how Paul sees it. Salvation has come to the world, to the nations. But just as God has promised, it has come through Israel's Messiah. And when he says salvation, he means, of course, not what you and I often instinctively think. He means not a hope of how to get out of the world and go to heaven. He means by salvation the hope of heaven coming to earth. He means the hope of God doing what he said he would do all along, and that is heal the world, bring redemption to the material universe. This is a salvation that death itself cannot undo because of the remarkable reality of the resurrection of Jesus. So, Paul says, if you're a Gentile believer, again, I think that's most everybody in this room. So if you're a Gentile believer, you have come to share... If you're a Christian, do you, know what you, do you know what this means? You have come to share in the spiritual blessings that were given to Israel. In the Abrahamic covenant, you have come now to be made a part of all that was promised to Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And if that's true, it is now your obligation, Paul's saying to the Gentiles, to share with those impoverished Jewish believers the material blessings that you have. They were given spiritual promises, spiritual blessings. You, rich Roman nations, have an obligation to share with them in material blessings. That's what he's saying. Nothing else, Paul believed, could testify so loud and clear that in this new people of God, Israel, redefined by her Messiah, there is a remarkable unity, even though there's considerable diversity. You've got the nations now worshiping Israel's God. And yet, in this collection, in the sharing of the blessings together, there is a unity in, seen in the remarkable diversity. Now, I understand that the situation of the global church today is not quite the same as it was in the first century. But I offer to you, Christian, the suggestion 
that the principle found in verse 27 still holds for us today. We need the church in order to experience the full blessings of God, the enormous promises that God has made to the world through the Messiah. We need everyone. We need all the believers from every nation, from every tongue. We need to be united together to experience these full blessings. So today, where we see churches helping churches, partnering together even across the diversity of our denominations, and caring for one another in spite of the particularities of our preferences, we see a powerful testimony to the world of the reality of God's kingdom come in Jesus. Don't be fooled by the things that appear to divide the church today. Sure, there are plenty of things that all of our churches may get wrong, There are plenty of things that still threaten to divide congregations. That's not hard to see. But the remarkable unity of the church for 2,000 years, gathering for worship, maybe with some different music, different places, maybe with some different personalities sitting in the seats, maybe with some different languages, coming out of the mouth, but gathering together, saying one essential thing, Jesus is Lord of the world, is a remarkable display of unity. You're hearing all the bad press, and we deserve it, about the church, but what you are not hearing is the promise of Jesus that, like a little seed planted, the kingdom of God is growing and exploding. For 2,000 years, churches gathering together on the Lord's Day, reciting something like the creed we confessed earlier. Hearing the word of God read, proclaimed, praying together, singing songs, exalting Jesus, receiving the Lord's Supper. These are not unique to us. This is what we do with all the churches for 2,000 years. It's a remarkable display of unity, and we need it all to experience the blessings that are ours together in Jesus, spiritual and material, all of it, because, as Jesus said, don't you know that we will inherit the earth? It's all ours in Jesus. Now, lastly, we need the church to achieve gospel goals. You see, if the gospel is about the kingdom of God, if that's the the good message, the good news that we have to proclaim, then gospel goals, the ambition of our life, no matter what your vocations, no matter what your daily activities may be, the gospel goals are all about, uh, what, what word can we use? Advancing kingdom purposes, exalting the king of the kingdom. <laughs> this is our calling. What else could be our calling? What else are you, are you given to do, Christian, than to make much of Jesus and his kingdom? And if this is our calling, then I want you to notice what Paul does here 
at the end of our passage, he appeals to the church. He says, by the Lord and by the love of the Spirit to work together. In fact, the word that he uses here, uh, translated to, let's see, to strive together is a Greek word that means to agonize with. Strive together. Paul would put it a little stronger than that. I, I appeal to you by the Lord, by, by Jesus as king of the universe, and by the love of the Spirit, that we agonize together, that we strive together. We, we need to help each other. The kingdom of God, let's be clear, advances by the sovereign decree of God. He will build his church. He will give his kingdom. But here's the amazing thing that Paul came to see about the gospel. God has brought us as his people to be his co-laborers, to advance gospel goals, to advance kingdom agendas in his world what he's given you a calling to do. And we are called to do this by helping each other, by agonizing with one another. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we agonize with one another? Paul tells us right here. Here's what he says. Take a look at it. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, family of God, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me, here it is, in your prayers. Agonize with me in prayer. In fact, Paul, as he writes to the Romans, has something very particular he wants them to pray for him about. He mentions two things, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. That second one is because this collection, uh, he wants it to be received by the Jewish Christians as a testimony of the unity that Gentile and Jewish Christians share together. So he wants it to be well-received. But notice that first thing he says, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. You see, if you read the story of Paul in the book of Acts, here's what you find. This journey to Jerusalem just about cost him his life. In fact, he did indeed eventually get to Rome, but not the way he thought he'd get there. He got there as a prisoner, arrested and carried to Rome to appeal to Caesar. In fact, did Paul ever get to Spain? The historical evidence for this is scant. Most scholars today will say he probably did not. He never saw that gospel goal brought to fulfillment. Nevertheless, Paul begs the church at Rome to strive with him, to work with him, and to do it by prayer. Now, Christian Many times we say to one another, let's, can we be honest for a second? Just like that priority statement that we make all the time. Many times we say when we hear about a brother and sister in need or, or an opportunity a brother or sister has, we say things like, what do we say? I will pray for you. 
How many of you will confess this morning you've used that phrase and then never did pray for some pray for that person? Any confessions this morning? Okay. See, one of our elders was the first to raise his hand. That's called gospel leadership right now. That, that's, I've done this so many times. So let me ask you again. How many of you have said, I'll be praying for you, and then you never did? Raise your hand. Bunch of liars in here. Look at you guys. Okay. Is it possible, brothers and sisters, that the meaninglessness that our world picks up on, thoughts and prayers are with you, is not because prayer does nothing, but because we actually don't pray. Paul says, I am begging you to agonize with me, to strive with me. Okay, but what are we supposed to do? Pray. Pray for me. Paul expects, he says here, it's through your prayers to God on my behalf that my goals will be brought to fulfillment. Let me tell you something. Prayer is hard work. If anyone says, praying's easy, I just kind of pray throughout the day, I think you're missing what Paul's talking about. In calling the church to strive with him, surely he expected the same sort of gathering unity together that he expected for the giving of an offering. Surely what Paul meant is get together with the believers and spend time praying for these things. So even here we find the difficulty of prayer. Oftentimes we say, I'll be praying for you, and like, okay, I just kind of keep that to myself. This is going to require us gathering together, meeting together to pray, to pray. Prayer is hard work, and if we, but if we do it, if we actually do it, perhaps it is actually the most helpful work that we can do for one another. In prayer, as the Christian prays, the presence of God comes to our aid through his spirit-filled family. You may say, well, that's, it's all nice, sounds real good, but I guarantee you if you knew, if right now, whatever it is that's troubling you the most, whatever it is that's, that you are agonizing about in your life, oh God, please, this is my one request. If you could do anything, I want you to do this. And if you knew, that there were countless Christians on this Lord's Day gathering together to pray for you by name, I guarantee you, you would be greatly helped. You would be greatly encouraged. Yes, in our prayers, as we see in the Apostle Paul's life, God does not always answer them the way that we would like. He does not always remove the suffering for which we pray. By the way, he didn't for Jesus in Gethsemane. When Jesus prays, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. Isn't there another way? Can't you make it possible? I don't have to suffer the wrath of God for the, for the salvation of the world. In the same way, Christian, Romans 8 says, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. We pray and we bear with one another in our suffering. But God does promise 
his presence in these dark places. So I ask you, Christian, how is your prayer life? And I don't say that to shame anyone. (laughs) We all raised our hands in here. Prayer is hard work. We often don't believe what it is we say we believe. And yet in prayer, this is an opportunity for us to strive together. It might be good before you leave this morning to talk to a brother and sister. Ask them, how are you doing? What are your plans for the week? And then before you go, put a hand on his shoulder and carry out your spirit-empowered vocation to pray, to help them in prayer. So yes, as Paul also needed the church, so we need the church to pursue gospel ambition, to enjoy gospel blessings, and to achieve gospel goals. And if we do this, we can expect to see God's will, as Paul wrote about in Romans 12, and as he mentions here at Romans 15, verse 32, God's will to be proven and to find the joy and refreshment in each other's company, in the church. And as Paul prayed at the end of this chapter, so I pray now, may the God of peace be with you all. Let us pray. Father in heaven, if you're going to help us this morning, we're going to have to see the power, the explosive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ fresh in our own day. We've become accustomed to, one of the, mo- to, the, mo- to the most amazing message of good news, and we've lost our awe Perhaps it's because we have not seen the good news of the kingdom of God the way Paul saw it. Perhaps we've seen it only in its spiritual manifestations, the great promises made to Israel that give us hope for something maybe way ahead in the future, and instead recognizing that as Jesus promised, the kingdom of God is coming to earth. The promised land is now the entirety of God's created world. And it is ours in Christ Jesus. And so we have a present blessing here and now to build for the kingdom of God that you by your grace have given to us as an inheritance. Yeah, there's there's good work to be done because of the good news of the work that has been done. Oh, that you would fill us as your people with this great ambition. I pray that you would convict us, oh God, of the priorities of our life that are out of order. We have made your people, the gathering of your people, the the communion of saints, we have let it become less important to us than many other things. And it's not because uh, by our prioritizing the church, we somehow merit your favor? Perish the thought. It's because you have made us, by grace, members of the people of God and all the promises that are found therein. So energize us, O God, again 
for the great privilege it is to be counted children of God. We ask you to forgive us for the many times we've said as just really a trite expression, I'll pray for you, failing to understand how powerful it is to pray. In prayer, the presence of God is known even in the darkest of places. The love of God is experienced in the midst of agonizing suffering. That's why we prayed together this morning for our brother, Peter, who is in the hospital right now, striving, O Lord, together with you that by your grace you might bring healing to our brother even now. Speak the word and he could be healed. We believe this. So, Father, would you, would you awaken us to the realities of the kingdom of God that are now ours in Jesus and help us to carry out our God-given grace infused vocation to spread good tidings to all people. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen and amen.